I have reason, my brethren and sisters, to feel very deeply about the subject that I have chosen for today and to feel more than the usual need for your sustaining prayers because it's of a very sacred nature. When the Lord was upon the earth, he made it very clear that there was one way and one way only by which man may be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. To proceed on that way, these two things emerge as being very fixed. First, in his name rests the authority to secure the salvation of mankind. For there is none other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. And next, there is an essential ordinance, baptism, standing as a gate through which every soul must pass to obtain eternal life. Now, the Lord was neither hesitant nor was he apologetic in proclaiming exclusive authority over those processes, all of them in total, by which we may return to the presence of our Heavenly Father. This ideal was very clear in the minds of his apostles also, and their preaching provided for one way and one way only for men to save themselves. Over the centuries, men saw that many, indeed most, never found that way. This became very hard to explain. Perhaps they thought it would be generous to admit that there are other ways, so they tempered or tampered with the doctrine. This rigid emphasis on one Lord and one baptism was thought to be too restrictive, too exclusive, even though the Lord himself had described it as being narrow. For straight is the gate, and narrow the way, which leadeth unto life. Since baptism is essential, there must be an urgent concern to carry the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That came as a commandment from him. His true servants will be out to convert all who will here to the principles of the gospel, and they will offer them that one baptism which he proclaimed as being essential. The preaching of the gospel is evident to one degree or another in all of the Christian churches. Most, however, are content to enjoy whatever they can gain from membership in their church without any real effort to see that others hear about it. The powerful missionary spirit and the vigorous missionary activity in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints becomes a very significant witness that the true gospel and that the authority is possessed here in the Church. We accept the responsibility to preach the gospel to every person on earth. And if the question is asked, you mean you're out to convert the entire world? The answer is yes. We'll try to reach every living soul. Some who measure that challenge quickly say why that's impossible. It cannot be done. To that we simply say perhaps. But we shall do it anyway. Against the insinuation that it cannot be done, we are willing to commit every resource that can be righteously accumulated to this work. Now, while our effort may seem modest when measured against the challenge, it's hard to ignore when measured against what's being accomplished or even what's being attempted elsewhere. Presently, we have over 21,000 missionaries serving in the field and paying for the privilege. And that's only part of the effort. Now, I do not suggest that this number should be impressive, for we do not feel we're doing nearly as well as we should be. And more important than that, any one of them would be evidence enough if we knew the source of the individual conviction that each carries. We ask no relief of the assignment to seek out every living soul, to teach them the gospel, and offer them baptism, and we're not discouraged, for there is a great power in this work, and that can be verified by anyone who's sincerely inquiring. Now, there's another characteristic that identifies his church that also has to do with baptism. There's a very provoking and a very disturbing question about those who died without baptism. What about them? 
If there is none other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that is true, and they have lived and died without even hearing that name, and if baptism is essential, and it is, and they died without even an invitation to accept it, where are they now? This is hard to explain, and it describes most of the human family. There are several religions larger than any Christian denomination, indeed larger than all of them put together, and their adherents for centuries have lived and died and never heard the word baptism. What is the answer for them? That is a most disturbing question. What power would establish one Lord and one baptism and then allow it to be that most of the human family would never come within its influence? With that question unanswered, the vast majority of the human family must be admitted to be lost. And against any reasonable application of the law of justice or of mercy either, how could Christianity itself be sustained? When you find the true Church, you'll find the answer to that disturbing question. If a Church has no answer for that, how can it lay claim to be His Church? He is not willing to write off the majority of the human family who are never baptized. Those who admit in puzzled frustration that they have no answer to this cannot lay claim to authority to administer to the affairs of the Lord on the earth or to oversee the work by which all mankind must be saved. Since they had no answer concerning the fate of those who had not been baptized, Christians came to believe that baptism itself was not critical and important, and that the name of Christ may not be all that essential. There must, they suppose, be other names whereby man could be saved. The answer to that puzzling challenge could not be invented by men, but was revealed. I underline the word revealed. Revelation, too, is an essential characteristic of his Church. Communication with him through Revelation was established when the Church was established. It has not ceased, and it is constant in the Church in our day. As I address myself to the question of those who died without baptism, I do so with the deepest reverence, for it touches on a sacred work. Little known to the world, we move obediently forward in a work that is so marvelous in its prospects, transcendent above what man might have dreamed of, supernal, inspired, and true. In it lies the answer. In the earliest days of the Church, the prophet was given direction through Revelation that work should commence on the building of a temple akin to the temples that had been built anciently. There was revealed ordinance work to be performed there for the salvation of all mankind. Then another ancient scripture, ignored or overlooked by the Christian work world in general, was understood and moved into significant prominence. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Here then was the answer. With proper authority, an individual could be baptized for and in behalf of someone who had never had the opportunity. That individual could accept or reject baptism according to his own desire. This work came as a great reaffirmation of something very basic that the Christian world now only partly believes and that is that there is a life after death. Mortal death is no more an ending than birth was a beginning. The great work of redemption goes on beyond the veil as well as here in mortality. And the Lord said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. On October the 3rd, 1918, President Joseph F. Smith was pondering on the scriptures, including this one from Peter. 
For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. There was opened to him a marvelous vision. In it he saw the concourses of the righteous, and he saw Christ ministering among them. Then he saw those that had not had the opportunity, those who had not been valiant, and he saw the work for their redemption. And I quote his record of this vision. I perceived that the Lord went not in person among the wicked and the disobedient who had rejected the truth to teach them, but behold, from among the righteous he organized his forces, appointed messengers clothed with power and authority, and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to the spirits of all men. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. We have been authorized to perform baptisms vicariously, so that when they hear the gospel preached and desire to accept it, that essential ordinance will have been performed. They need not ask for any exemption from that essential ordinance. Indeed, the Lord himself was not exempted from it. Here and now, then, we move to accomplish the work to which we are assigned, and we are busily engaged in that kind of baptism. We gather the records of our kindred dead, indeed the records of the entire human family, and in sacred temples, in baptismal fonts designed as those were anciently, we perform these sacred ordinances. Strange, one may say, it is passing strange. It is transcendent and supernal. The very nature of the work testifies that he is our Lord, that baptism is essential, that he taught the truth. And so the question may be asked, you mean you are out to provide baptism for all who have ever lived? The answer is simply yes, for we have been commanded to do so. You mean for the entire human family? Why, that is impossible. If the preaching of the gospel to all who are living is a formidable challenge, then the vicarious work for all who have ever lived is impossible indeed. To that we say, perhaps, but we shall do it anyway. And once again we certify that we are not discouraged. We ask no relief of that assignment, no excuse from fulfilling it. Our effort today is modest indeed when viewed against the challenge. But since nothing is being done for them elsewhere, our accomplishments we have come to know have been pleasing to the Lord. Already we have collected hundreds of millions of names, and the work goes forward in the temples and will go on in other temples that will be built. Now the size of the effort we do not suggest should be impressive, for we are not doing nearly as well as we should be. Those who thoughtfully consider the work inquire about those names that cannot be collected. What about those for whom no record was ever kept? Surely you will fail there. There is no way you can search out those names. To this I simply observe, you have forgotten Revelation. Already we have been directed to many records through that process. Revelation comes to individual members as they are led to discover their family records in ways that are miraculous indeed. And there is a feeling of inspiration attending this work that can be found in no other. When we have done all that we can do, we shall be given the rest. The way will be opened up. Every Latter-day Saint is responsible for this work. Without the saving ordinances of the gospel, without this work, the saving ordinances of the gospel would apply to so few who have ever lived that it could not uh, be claimed to be true. Now there is another benefit from this work that relates to the living. It has to do with family life and the eternal preservation of it. It has to do with that which we hold most sacred and dear, 
the association with our own family, those whom we love in our own family circle. Something of the spirit of this can be sensed as I quote from a letter from my own family records. I quote a letter dated January the 17th, 1889, Safford, Graham County, in Arizona. It concerns my great-grandfather, who was the first of our line in the Church, who died just a few days later, Jonathan Taylor Packer. This letter was written by a daughter-in-law to the family. After describing the distress and difficulty he had suffered for several weeks, she then wrote, But I will do all I can for him for I consider it my duty. I will do for him like I would do for my dear mother, for I am afraid I shall never see her again in this world. And then she wrote this. Your father says, for you all to be faithful to the principles of the gospel and asks the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob upon you all and bid you all goodbye until he meets you in the morning of the resurrection. Well, Martha, I can't hardly see the lines for tears, so I will stop writing. Give my love to the family from your loving sister, Mary Ann Packer. I know that I shall see this great-grandfather beyond the veil, and my grandfather, and my father, and I know that I shall there also meet those of my ancestors who lived when the fullness of the gospel was not upon the earth, those who lived and died without ever hearing his name nor having the invitation to be baptized. I say that no point of doctrine sets this Church apart from the other claimants as this one does. Save for it, we would, with all of the others, have to accept the clarity with which the New Testament declares baptism to be essential and then admit that most of the human family could never have it. But we have the revelations. We have those sacred ordinances. There is a life beyond the grave, and I know by experience too sacred to relate. For the veil is occasionally drawn that his servants might see and know and bear testimony of this work. The revelation that places upon us the obligation for this baptism for the dead is section 128 in the Doctrine and Covenants. And I should like to read in closing two or three of the closing verses of that section. Brethren, shall we not go on in so great a cause? Go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, on and on to the victory. Let your hearts rejoice and be exceeding glad. Let the earth break forth into singing. Let the dead speak forth anthems of eternal praise to King Emmanuel, who hath ordained before the world was that which would enable us to redeem them out of the prisons. Let the mountains shout for joy, and all ye valleys cry aloud, and all ye seas and dry lands tell the wonders of your King Emmanuel. And ye rivers and brooks and rills flow down with gladness, and let the woods and all the trees and fields praise the Lord, and let ye solid rocks weep for joy. Let us, therefore, as a church, and as a people, and as Latter-day Saints, offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, and let us present in his holy temple a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptation. I bear witness that this work is true, that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, that there is on this earth today a prophet of God to leave modern Israel in this great obligation. And I bear witness that I know that the Lord lives and that he broods anxiously over this work for the redemption of the dead. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
It's great to have these men come and join with us in the first quorum of the Seventy. The power and strength that they exhibit is a testimony to us all. <clears throat> Etched in stone at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., is this meaningful truth. The heritage of the past is the seed that brings forth the harvest of the future. Two hundred years ago, the seeds of our heritage were being planted by men and women of great spiritual drive and steadfastness of purpose, seeds of devotion and willing sacrifice for a just cause, seeds of loyalty, of faith in God, were all planted in the soil of freedom that a mightier work might come forth. In Richard Wheeler's Voices of 1776, we read <clears throat> first-hand accounts of, the, of some of those who were engaged in this planting process. <clears throat> Their expressions stir our souls to a greater appreciation of the heritage we enjoy and upon which we must build. A young doctor of Barnstable, Massachusetts, recorded in his journal on the 21st of April, 1775, the following. This event seems to have electrified all classes of people, inspiriting and rousing the people to arms. To arms! Never was a cause more just, more sacred than ours. We are commanded to defend the rich inheritance bequeathed to us by our virtuous ancestors. It is our bounden duty to transmit it uncontaminated to our posterity. We must fight valiantly. From Boston, Massachusetts, a well-to-do female citizen wrote this, Our all is at stake, and we are called upon by every tie that is dear and sacred to exert the spirit that heaven has given us to this righteous struggle for liberty. My only brother I have sent to the camp with my prayers and blessings. I am confident he will behave with honor, and had I twenty sons and brothers, they should go. Nothing is heard now in our streets but the trumpet and the drum, and the universal cry is, Americans to arms. <clears throat> also from a Pennsylvania newspaper came the report of other examples of patriotism of citizens of all ages. And I quote, The ladies in Bristol Township have evidenced a laudable regard to the interest of their country. At their own expense, they have furnished the regiment of that county with a suit of colors and drums. The aged, as well as the young, daily march out under the banners of liberty and reveal a determined resolution to maintain her cause even until death. We read of four companies formed in a town of Reading, Berks County, Pennsylvania, the fourth being called the Old Man's Company because it consisted of 80 old men of the age of 40 and upwards. The person who at their first assembling led them to the field was 97 years of age. The drummer was 84. As it was in Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, so it was in other colonies. Hear the words of Charles Lee, who became one of the top commanders in this fight for freedom. No man is better acquainted with the state of this continent than myself. I have conversed with all orders of man, from the first estated gentleman to the lowest planters and farmers, and the same spirit animates the whole. That same fervor prevails again today. The same spirit animates the whole among the membership of the Church throughout the, the whole world. Today, another call to arms has been sounded by our prophets. In an address in April 1973, President Harold B. Lee declared, So this is a call to arms. Arms to do what? To keep the commandments of God in order that we might lay claim to the blessings we need in this day of uncertainty. One of the commandments of the Lord that is being heeded today with a fervor reminiscent of our forebears is the call to go forth and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In April 1974, Spencer W. Kimball reaffirmed the call to arms in these words. We have hardly scratched the surface. We can approach the ideals set out by President McKay, every member a missionary. 
That was inspired. I know this message is not new. We have talked about it before. But I believe the time has come that we must shoulder arms. We must raise our sights and raise our goals. The zeal with which the Church membership has responded to President Kimball's clarion call is very exciting. During 1973, new missionaries were entering the fields of labor at the rate of about 761 each month. In 1974, the rate increased to 847 missionaries each month. And for the first nine months of 1975, the monthly rate has been approximately 1,200. The spirit with which the young and the old are responding is typified in the words of one of them who wrote, The call has brought me to tears, not because I was afraid or sad or bewildered, merely overwhelmed by the trust the Lord has given me. Nephi had the faith I wished to have. Now I have a task large enough to apply great faith to. We all know of missionaries who are making great personal sacrifices to answer their call from the Lord. It is not unusual to find outstanding athletes interrupting a promising career to enter missionary service. Other young men postpone schooling and professional career preparation to take up arms for the Lord. Representative of these many noble examples is the young man from Brazil. Fernando Requino was attending a sacrament meeting in his small branch when he heard the mission president emphasize President Kimball's declaration that every young man should prepare himself for missionary service. Until that time, he hadn't thought it possible or necessary to even consider serving a mission. He'd begun a, an apprenticeship, he supported himself, and earned only enough money to pay for his schooling. His parents were not members of the Church, nor were they sympathetic to his affiliation with the Church. Still, the words of the prophet pulled at his heart and mind. One morning, he met privately with his father and told him of his love and respect for him. Drawing upon all the courage he could muster, Fernando looked straight into his father's eyes, and with a soft, humble voice he said, Father, I want your permission to go on a mission for the Lord, to serve as a missionary in my church. His father objected strongly. He reminded Fernando that he had no financial resources with which to pay for such an undertaking. With tears coursing down his cheeks, this son faced his father and answered that he was ready to sell the plot of land that was his inheritance and use the money obtained to finance his mission. Fernando told his father how a prophet of God had asked every young man to prepare and to go on a mission for the Lord. He told how he himself had fasted and prayed for three days and how the Lord had shown him what to do to fulfill his priesthood responsibility. The father's heart was softened. He put his arms about Fernando, and together they wept. If you want to go so much that you are willing to sacrifice your entire inheritance, said his father, then you will have my permission to go. You will not have to sell your property. I will provide the financial support for your mission. The Lord opens the way to serve for anyone who is obedient, faithful, and willing to sacrifice to cause His work to go forward. Recently, <clears throat> I had the privilege of meeting with some missionaries in Stuttgart, Germany. We talked of the urgency of our work and examined ways to improve the effectiveness of their proselyting efforts. We discussed the challenge by President Kimball for missionaries to become eight times more effective in obtaining teaching opportunities. As one group of elders returned to their apartment following the meeting, one of them said, If the prophet of the Lord says we can do it, we can. We'll find a way. And they did. They studied, prayed, and worked. By the close of their next week's proselyting period, <clears throat> the five companionships had given more than 200 discussions. Each pair of missionaries met their goal to be eight times more effective. In every part of the world where I have been privileged to visit, I have seen similar examples of zeal and devotion. 
Members in their home branches and wards are also heeding the call of the Lord. One such member is a valiant brother from Guaratingata, Brazil. He spreads the gospel almost every waking hour and in a most unique way. As he meets people, he states his name, E. J. Sariva, and hands them his card. He then waits for them to read his name as it's printed on the card. Elder E. J. Sariva Zion. Often their response is something like this. What does this Zion mean? To which he replies, Oh, don't you know about Zion? Let me tell you. <clears throat> Brother Sariva then introduces his listener to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. With this courageous technique and in his zeal and love for the Lord, Brother Sariva has brought more than 130 souls into the kingdom of our Heavenly Father. Another home-front soldier for the Lord is a taxi driver. In his cab hangs a sign which reads, I care. Most passengers ask, What do you care about? Well, this good brother <coughs> then explains that he belongs to a church that cares about people. If his passengers inquire further, he accommodates their interest by handing them a copy of the Book of Mormon from the supply he conveniently keeps by his driver's seat. <coughs> this faithful member has participated in the conversion of more than 200 souls. Yes, the same spirit animates the whole today among the members of the Church. What a thrilling time to be here in the earth. As we see the work rolling forth, may each of us become a part of its progress. May we answer the call as valiantly as did those who are responsible for the rich heritage we enjoy. Through courageous, faithful service, may we bring forth a fruitful harvest in the vineyard of the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brothers and sisters, I finally realize how General Custer must have felt with all those... I want you to know that it's a great honor and a privilege to be in your presence today and in the presence of our prophet and all those that assist him in the kingdom of God. I am proud to say to you and to declare to you today, brothers and sisters, to be a descendant of Lehi, Nephi, and all the great Book of Mormon prophets, I am proud to be a child of the Book of Mormon people. I have found my true heritage. I have found my true identity. I am a son of God, a child of God, a child of the Book of Mormon, a child of Lehi, a rich heritage that extends all the way back to my heavenly Father, through Moses and Abraham and great prophets. I'm also proud to let you know that I'm proud to be a descendant of great Indian chiefs of our country. I am proud to be a descendant of Red Cloud, Sitting Bull, Chief Joseph, Chi Dodge, Chief Crazy Horse, and all these great Indian chiefs that did so well and fought for their people. I want you to know that these men were great. I wouldn't be surprised if they are all in paradise. And I wouldn't be surprised if all of them are converted. Maybe some of them are on fourth discussion. I'm proud of my rich heritage. To you, my people, the Lamanite people, on Indian reservations and in the cities of our country, 
and through the islands of the sea. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is our elder brother. He is our savior. He is our redeemer. We have a choice heritage. I want you to know, you Lamanite people, our heavenly father loves you. Jesus Christ, your elder brother, loves you. He has died for you. He has sacrificed his life, overcame our sins. He conquered death for each of you and every man on earth. He is our elder brother. He is Jesus Christ. He lives, God of this earth, our elder brother. To you in the church, throughout the world, as members of the church, I too declare to you that the time has come to lay aside our differences, to join hands as children of God. We have a great job to do to bring many more choice spirits of our Heavenly Father into his kingdom all over the world. The time has come for all of us to be 365 days a year Latter-day Saints and seven days a week Latter-day Saints, not only on Sunday. The Lord has need of every Latter-day Saint to be a missionary, to bring others into his church. The time has come, brothers and sisters, to realize that we have no guarantee to celestial kingdom. Just because we're members of this church does not give us a guarantee to celestial kingdom. Only if we endure to the end and are faithful until he comes again. To you, my brothers and sisters in the world, who are still searching for truth, who deny the existence of God, I declare to you today, I give, give you two challenges. I challenge you to find another church, another organization, another way of life that has 12 apostles, that has a prophet, that is run by revelation, that baptizes by immersion. You will find there is no other church, there is no other way. That is like the church that we have the same church that Jesus Christ organized here in this very soil that we are living on today and in the Bible. That is my first challenge to you. My second challenge to you is to look around you. What do you see? You see a beautiful creation, a handiwork of Jesus Christ, our elder brother, our Savior. He's done so many wonderful things for us. How can we deny, as intelligent as we are, the existence of a God, the greatest witness of Jesus Christ, is right before your very eyes. The trees, the grass, the universe, the moon, the sun. Can any mortal man create human beings? Can any mortal man create the grass, the universe, the sun, the moon, the rain, the snow, the trees, the very food we eat? Can any mortal man create such a beautiful world as we see and as we live in today? How can we as scientists and learned men deny the existence of God and Jesus Christ when right before our very eyes, no mortal man can duplicate what we see. This is enough to tell all of us there is a God. There is a divine God. There is a divine Christ, Jesus Christ. He lives. He is the creator of this world. He is the creator of all of us. This is his plan. 
This is his way of life. All of us must realize that when we die and go to paradise, if we make it there, that as a pale face, you will not find United States in paradise. You might as well realize that we're going to go all in the same place. As an Indian, I will not find an Indian reservation in paradise. As a Hopi, you will not find no Hopi reservation. As a Japanese, you will not find China in paradise. <laughs> and I want to tell you, Elder Komatsu, that you will not find Japan in paradise. <laughs> every man, every woman, as a member of this church, brothers and sisters, we might as well realize, let's live together, we're brothers and sisters. We all go to the same place if we're righteous, if we endure to the end. There is no United States, there is no Navajo Reservation in paradise. God lives, Jesus Christ lives, brothers and sisters. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. My brethren and sisters, and friends, it is a privilege to be here in this sacred place and to attend this inspiring conference. The Spirit of the Lord is here. I have felt it, and I am confident many of you have felt it. For your sustaining faith and prayers enhance and magnify that divine presence. In truth, we are come together for the purpose of witnessing to the world that this is God's Church, that President Spencer W. Kimball is truly a prophet of our Heavenly Father. I am sure that my father would have been thrilled today to have been here and to have seen Brother Lee sustained as a general authority. He loved the Indian people, as I do and you do. And so we are pleased with this appointment. These past six months have been the most enriching and surely the most uplifting and challenging of my entire life. We have observed a restless spirit among the people of Europe. Why? Because there is a gnawing hunger in the human heart that, if not fed by the truths of the gospel, leaves life empty and devoid of peace. The hodgepodge of economic isms advocated so-called by wise men of the world has solved few, if any, problems and has brought no real joy. Such empty nostrums have led mankind to seek worldly goods and symbols of material power, blinding humanity to truth that only the righteous life, firmly established in the daily living of God's commandments, brings true happiness. Anything less leaves the heart unfed with a yearning inner hunger, a hunger which it is our mission to identify and define and which we should make the people aware. I have seen in Europe the fulfillment of the words of Amos, that there would be a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, but of hearing of the words of the Lord. There are a few simple truths that I should now like to restate and reaffirm briefly. My recent experiences have caused them to loom large in my thoughts. First, I know as never before that there is a form of communication that transcends the power of words. Words, indeed, they are indispensable, but there is a great deal more to understanding than the use of mere words. As all history attests, an alien spirit may reduce the clearest language to naught but a medium of futility and frustration. This I have observed. There are no language barriers in the Church. There is a mighty power that transcends the power of messages conveyed by words alone, and this is the power of messages communicated by the Spirit to our hearts. In every land and clime, the sweet spirit of our Savior communicates to all who seek the truth, regardless of tongue or dialect.
It is a universal messenger to every heart and tune. I have felt it everywhere in my recent experiences, regardless of the prevailing language spoken. And I testify to the power and authenticity of such communications. The Spirit is as operative today in communicating the gospel to all who seek the truth as it was on the day of Pentecost anciently. There is a striking description of this miracle in the Doctrine and Covenants. For it shall come to pass in that day that every man shall hear the fullness of the gospel in his own tongue and in his own language through those who are ordained unto this power by the administration of the Comforter shed forth upon them for the revelation of Jesus Christ. What the power of the Spirit can communicate beyond the meaning of words is clearly seen in an experience of Brother Peter Marek real estate director for the Church in Europe. He met with city officials, including the mayor, to negotiate the purchase of the former city hall. If it could be purchased, it was to be converted into a meeting house for the Church. The mayor of the neighboring German town was also present, inasmuch as a recent change in the boundaries involved both communities and the transaction. The gentleman who introduced Brother Marek to the mayors and officials did so in a spirit of levity. He said, I want to introduce Mr. Marek here, who represents this denomination, this uh, sect, this group. He finally got around to saying, This church. Then Brother Marek raised his hand and said, Mr. Mayor, I object. The mayor answered the me answered. The meeting ha hasn't even started. What are you objecting to? Brother Marek replied, before, the before we start, I'd like everybody to understand who and what it is I represent. I represent the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only true Church upon the face of the earth today. This statement incited laughter. Then the mayor said to the gentleman introducing Brother Marek, You'd better be careful what you say about this church. Brother Marek thought that this had settled the preliminaries, but the mayor of the smaller town spoke up and said, I'd like to say something about this church. We have le leased a schoolhouse to them for over two years. I have found them to be a very beautiful people. I go to the swimming pool on the school grounds quite often. One night I found a special gathering of their church members near the pool. They were holding a baptismal service. I sat quietly at the rear of the group and watched. They sang a hymn. I thought it was beautiful. Then someone prayed, and when he said, Amen, they all said, Amen. I was impressed with that. Then a teenage girl got up and spoke about what Christ and the Church meant to her. She was moved to tears. I, too, was deeply moved. I was further moved by the heartwarming sincerity, the oneness and spiritual unity of these people. When I went home, I said to my wife, Let's get more information about this church. We need to find more, more about it. When the mayor concluded, Brother Marek said, Mr. Meyer, you would make a good bishop in our church. And they all laughed again. But the feeling in the meeting had changed profoundly. The Spirit of the Lord was there and was speaking to the hearts of those present. So Brother Marek was impressed to say, Since the mayor has explained to you what our church is about, I am sure now you understand why we need to purchase it at the lowest possible price. The church bought this choice piece of property at a very greatly reduced price. This was accomplished because Brother Marek had the courage to bear his testimony. This testimony was accompanied by the power of the Spirit which inspired the mayor to speak and which communicated a favorable conviction about the Church to the city officials. What the Spirit communicates to the hearts of men is beyond the power of words to portray. The second truth reemphasized in my missionary life is that the Lord communicates in a miraculous way His purposes to achieve. A new elder in Italy by the name of Gary D. Shaw, in following the promptings of the Spirit, 
discovered this reality. Elder Shaw had been in the mission field only two weeks when, he, when his senior companion became ill. The elders, as a consequence, had to remain in their apartment all day. Elder Shaw was moved by the Spirit and had a great desire to talk to someone about the gospel. So he picked up the phone, the phone book, in which more than three million names were listed. He chose three. There was no response to the first call. To the second, a woman answered and informed Elder Shaw that she wasn't at all interested, and to make matters worse, declared that she couldn't understand his poor Italian <clears throat> and atrocious mode of speech. On the third try, a man answered. Elder Shaw introduced himself and received a warm response. The man said his name was Mabaglia and that he would gladly receive the elders. This he did. The appointment made so miraculously turned into a spiritually uplifting and inspiring occasion. After the first lesson, Mr. Mabaglia said, How wonderful! I worked for two years in a bank located on the street where the missionaries have done street board tracting. Again and again I have practically brushed them as I passed them on the street, but I was too shy to respond to them. Now in this miraculous way I have met you. At this point we should change the mister to brother, for after receiving the lessons, the man contacted by telephone was baptized, and Brother Mabagli is now serving in the presidency of the Naples branch, uh, which is located in the southern part of Italy. In the lives of the Worthland family, it all began over a hundred years ago with my great-grandfather, Leopold Worthland. He was born in Switzerland. As a young man, he embraced the gospel and was promptly disowned by his parents. This motivated him to make the long, hard trek to Salt Lake Valley. Some years thereafter, he received a call from President Brigham Young to serve a mission in Switzerland. He readily accepted. So that he could go, he sold all, his, all of his possessions. My great-grandmother sewed salt sacks at a penny apiece to support her family in his absence. I should like to conclude with a declaration of my great-grandfather as my deepest conviction and join his words and mine together as an everlasting witness. Leopold Worthland said in, sincere, in sincerest humility, I know that when I discharge my duty properly, I feel blessed, that when I am negligent, I am not happy. Therefore, as members of the Church, we should watch ourselves closely and see to it that we are discharging our duties faithfully. And may I add to his words these of my own. I know that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, and that the Father and Son appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith. Through him the true and everlasting gospel was restored among us, that we might attain the heights of a glorious exaltation as the beloved children of our Heavenly Father. To this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.